Hey folks, welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, how a car accident in Jerusalem changed one man's life. Reporter Joshua Prager is perhaps best known for tracking down elusive characters with incredible stories. People like Jahangir Razmi, a photographer in Tehran who is the only anonymous Pulitzer Prize recipient ever. People like Albert Clark, a misfit vagabond who'd likely have been homeless had he not been bequeathed rights to the wildly popular book Goodnight Moon. In a new book, Prager has turned his attention inward, writing a memoir called Half-Life, which looks at his own incredible story and leads us to the man responsible for altering it. When he was 19 and living in Israel, Josh Prager was in a bus accident that broke his neck. He's with us today in the studio, and we'll let him tell us what happened after that. But first, Josh, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks so much for having me. So you were 19, you were in Israel. What happened? Well, um, I had decided to go to Israel for a year. Like so much of my high school class, um, I went to Ramaz, a co-ed yeshiva in Manhattan, and I went to um, a Jewish school in, in Israel, and the year was about to end. It was May, May 16th, 1990. And the night before the crash, I had been playing basketball with friends. And um, it was a wonderful thing for me to play ball because I had suddenly grown a lot. I'd grown five inches and none of my clothes fit. And I'd gotten very strong. I'd done about 20,000 push-ups in those eight months. <laughs> and so the night before the crash, I was playing basketball with friends and I won. And when 19-year-old boys play with each other, they often play for food. And so they owed me pizza, pizza and Coke. So <laughs> I was off in a bus to Jerusalem to go get a haircut and also the food that I had won. And, um, just before we got to Jerusalem, about a thousand feet shy of Jerusalem, um, a truck carrying four tons of floor tiles uh, burnt out its brakes and slammed at great speed into the back left corner of the minibus where I was sitting, exactly where I was sitting. And my head snapped back over my seat and I broke the third and fourth uh, vertebrae in my neck. I didn't break it. They, <laughs> the truck broke it and... and um, and I was suddenly a quadriplegic. Today, you, though, are fairly mobile. You came in here with a cane. And I know uh, from your book, Half-Life, that you can throw a baseball. I mean, you have some agility. What was the prognosis immediately after the accident? And how did you get from then to now? Well, yes, today I'm what's called a hemiplegic, which means my body is divided vertically, more like a stroke patient. So, yes, I, I, I walk with a cane. And I also have an ankle brace on my left foot, um, my my left ankle. My left side has – it's restrained by spasticity, which is a sort of neurological tightness. And my right side works normally except for the fact that my right side doesn't have good sensation. So I can't feel pain or temperature on my right side while I can on my left. It's sort of curious. Um, when the accident happened, when the crash happened – I was, as I said, a quadriplegic. And when I got back, when I was in the hospital and they performed a neuro exam on me to see if I could feel anything, I couldn't move anything, but if I could feel anything, I had basically no sensation at all. My entire body, except one needle prick, um, I could feel my just around my, my lower back, around my sacrum area. And um, they did not think I was going to be better. Um, they... 
It was too early to tell for sure, but they did emergency surgery. They stabilized my broken neck, um, but they did not think I was going to get better. And it turned out that most of my initial paralysis was due to edema, to swelling against the spinal cord. And as that swelling subsided, my body enlivened. But um, I used a wheelchair for four years all through college. And when I finally rose from that chair, when I was back in Israel for a year, it was a very magical experience. Can you talk about some of the adjustments you've had to make as a result of the accident in terms of what your expectations were about your own life, what you wanted to do with it, how you wanted people to relate to you and so forth? Sure. Well, you know, when you're 19 years old and maybe even more so if you're a young man, you feel sort of completely invulnerable. I don't think it's a coincidence that they are the people who are marched off to war and just can't imagine anything bad happening to them. And I can tell you more about that because it was that feeling suddenly of vulnerability um, that even came upon me in the accident, not when the crash itself happened, but about a minute later when I realized that I couldn't move. It was that realization that transformed me really from who I'd been to who I I now am. Um, But I had decided at 19 years old, I had just decided that I wanted to be a doctor. And um, my father is a doctor and he casts a a long shadow, both literally, he's six foot four, and figuratively. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a difficult thing for me, but I decided that I wanted to do this. And I was also going to play baseball in college, and I was going to play the trumpet. Um, I was going to go to the University of Rochester, where they have a very good music school, the Eastman School of Music. Well, suddenly, I obviously couldn't play baseball, and in the beginning, I couldn't play trumpet, although ironically, it is the only instrument in the orchestra that you can play one-handed. Um, and so perhaps I could have continued to play. And I couldn't practice medicine in the way that I had envisioned um, prior to the crash. So I really didn't know what I was going to do. And it was a very difficult thing to feel redirected by something that I hadn't done, by something that another person had done to me, a person I didn't even know. And, you know, the interesting thing is as I've gotten older and I've looked back at this, it's remarkable to me to realize that everyone has to eventually evolve and reconcile to reality. We're not all you know, 19 years old forever. None of us are. And so that was ultimately a very comforting thought. In other words, this is a more of a universal experience than I'd sort of initially realized. So I ended up becoming a journalist and an author. And that job really suited me um, in many, many ways. I had found that people really open up to me um, and talk to me about things perhaps they wouldn't talk to other people about. And um, I've come to be a person who writes about about secrets and secrecy. And, you know, the interesting thing, and this is another um, issue, but I also realized only when it was pointed out to me by a rabbi friend about 10 years after the crash that I kept writing over and over and over again about people whose lives had changed in an instant. It's such an obvious fact in retrospect, but I didn't notice it at the time. Well, I want to get to all of those issues in a moment, but before we do, I just want to ask you, about the decision 22 years after the accident to go back to Israel and to try to find the man, he's called Abed, who was responsible. He was the driver of the truck that plowed into uh, the bus that you were on. What did you know about him? Well, at the time, I knew very, very little. I'll just step back to say this first. You know, I think there are different ways to deal with a bad thing. One of the things that helps a lot of people to do is to say that the bad thing is actually a good thing. What I mean is it's from God, and because God is just, 
it's a good thing. Ultimately, you have to figure out how, but it's a blessing. And I did not feel that way. I felt the bad thing is a bad thing. And my way of dealing with this bad thing over time was to know it fully, to learn everything about it, to get my arms around it. And once I'd sort of mastered it in a sense, and I could exert agency over this bad thing, I could then rid myself of it. And part of that process was learning everything I could about the accident and about the people who were involved in it. And when I went back to Israel, five years after the crash, I went back on a fellowship at Hebrew University, and there were three groups of people I wanted to find. There was the large Hasidic family that was in the bus with me. There was the man who caused the crash. And then there was the group of people who'd sort of taken care of me, the paramedic who saved my life in the bus, um, a resident at Hadassah Hospital who had also saved my life a few hours after the crash when my respirator malfunctioned and they lost my pulse. And I was able to find all of those medical people. I was able to find the Hasidic family. Um, And I also found all of the information connected to the crash. I found the police reports so I could learn all about it. I found the photographs of the crash. I found all of that. But the one person I couldn't find was the man who had caused the crash. Um, At the end of that fifth year, I did find him. And I called him on the phone. And we had a very sort of short, conversation in which I said, you know, I would love to meet you. I don't, I'm not angry at you. I don't want anything from you. I would like to meet you. Anyway, he said I should call back in a few weeks. And when I did call back in a few weeks, the number was disconnected Mm. and I let him go. I let it go and I let him go. And it was only when I went back to Israel this past year to write this book, 22 years after the crash, that I realized, you know what, I really still want to find this man. And so I set off, I rented a car, and I drove to a town called Kfar Kara near Haifa. I apologize for my um, American accent. Um, and, and I did find him. You say you weren't angry even five years after. To my mind, that seems so uh, improbable. How were you not angry? This man radically changed your life. You had to undergo incredible amounts of rehabilitation. Where was the anger? You know, it's interesting. I'm, as my family will vouch, I'm not a saint. Um, I am capable of feeling anger, but I didn't feel it toward this man. And I think a very simple fact took that anger away from me, which was that it was a, it was an accident. And the fact that there was, it wasn't intentional was a very big deal for me. That said, He was a remarkably negligent driver. When I found the police report, it was incredible. He had had 27 violations by the age of 25. That was his 27th violation. And it was when I found the police report, five years after the crash, that I did feel anger. For the first time, I was overcome with this sort of wave that washed over me of anger because as I was reading the police report in Hebrew, my Hebrew was pretty good. It was a very strange feeling. The crash hadn't happened yet on this piece of paper. I was reading what he did that morning, how he picked up these floor tiles and he dropped some off and he was now heading down the right lane of a highway. And as I was reading his words there, I had this very strange feeling. It was this, you know, magical realism that he could still avert what had already happened. He could turn his wheel left and get out of the lane and pass me by and I would be fine. I would remain whole. And when I continued to read 
and then he did drive on and he did crash at great speed into the corner of the minibus and my neck again broke, the anger went away again. It was now in the past and it was indeed an accident and um, that anger went away from me. And, you know, it was interesting when I met him. Um, I think this is all very, it's emboldening. And, you know, when you're a passive victim, it really helps to, as I said earlier, to exert some agency over it, to be active. And part of that whole process for me was finally writing my own narrative, not having just being a, a prop in someone else's, but getting my arms around this and writing my story. And and I did. And um, and And it felt very, very good. And if you saw the two of us sitting there in his living room in Kvarkara in this little town, well, it's not so little, 15,000 people, you wouldn't, you know, you would say, okay, this crash redirected the lives of two people. And Josh actually seems to be doing a lot better than Abed. Well, what was the encounter like? Well, I I set off to this town and um, I brought a present it was kind of funny. I was like, what the hell do you get the guy who, who broke your neck? I, I initially bought a pot of yellow roses and then I was driving to him. I'm like, I'm bringing this man roses? This is ridiculous. So I, I, I drove into this town, Abu Ghosh, and I brought a dessert that somehow seemed to me much more appropriate, um, this Turkish dessert of pistachios and rose water. And then I felt better. Anyway, um, I, I, I got to this town and I kind of wandered around and I'd been told that in an Arab town, people really know each other. You mention the name of a person who lives there and they will they will know that name. And that is what I found. It only took a few hours and I it's a town of 15,000. But very quickly, I found my way. A man outside a post office named Mohammed, who was a sweet man, and he listened to me. He felt for me. He knew that I was there in peace and I wanted resolution, I guess, of some sort. And he told me where to go. He directed me to this house and I went there and I met Abed's wife first. She was a woman wearing a black shawl and a black robe and she came to um, greet me. I stepped out of my car and I told her why I was there. And the very funny thing was her Hebrew wasn't very good and she thought that I'd come to install the internet. She told me <laughs> that later. But I was not there for the internet. I was there to meet her husband. She said, come back in four hours. And I did. And the nice thing was Mohammed, the man I'd met outside the post, post office, had in those intervening hours phoned Abed and told him that I was here. And so he was prepared when I then met him and we shook hands and he told me I was a guest in his house and I gave him my, my dessert and we sat beside one another. And what was fascinating was all those years before when I had briefly spoken to him on the phone, our conversation was bizarre. You would think that he had been the one who was hurt and I was okay because he prattled on endlessly about how hurt he was in the crash. And I knew from the police report that he was okay. And he continued on with that. He just had surgery on his eyes, he told me, and he had lost his teeth in the crash and things like that. And, you know, I'll leave, I'll leave that to the psychologists who are listening to dissect why. But, um, you know, I could, it's a long story. But basically, for me, it was remarkable. I didn't get what I came for. I didn't hear the words, I'm sorry. But it was enough. He was now known to me. I no longer had this unknown and I think that was the point of all of this for me. The, the most important thing for me has been all of these years to tease out where I end and the disability begins and vice versa, where the disability um, ends and I begin, and 
to not feel defined by something someone else did to me, to kind of understand who are we? Are we our genes? Are we experience? Are we how we react to these things? And and this was helpful to me in sort of putting everything in place. When you had gone to Israel before the accident, you went, as you said, to study at a yeshiva. You had gone to Ramaz, a yeshiva here in New York City. I wonder if the accident in any way changed your relationship to Judaism and your relationship to God. Well, I am definitely in a different place now vis-a-vis God than I was then, but it's helpful for me, and I'll tell you where that place is, it's helpful for me to remember that even before the crash, I was already wrestling with questions of faith. When I when the accident happened, it was interesting. I kept getting better. All of my advances kept happening on Shabbat. It was bizarre <laughs> when people were praying for me in, in shuls. I had a girlfriend then who had sent my name out to the masses, and it was it was bizarre. And I wasn't looking for that to happen. Trust me, I woke up on Wednesdays and Thursdays and Mondays too, trying desperately to move my body. But it was happening mainly on Shabbat, and that was complicated for me. But then I said, well, there's a wonderful man in the room next to me, Shlomo Feder, who's an Orthodox rabbi who's not getting better on Shabbat or any other day. But at the time, I said, you know what? Don't ask questions. Don't rock the boat. You're getting better. Let's, let's, let's not cause problems. And I then went back to Israel about seven months after the crash, and I went to the Kotel, and I did something I had never done before. I asked God for a favor. And I said, I had a bargain ready. I said, if you just heal my left hand, not my whole body, just my left hand, I will put on tefillin every day for the rest of my life um, because it is hard to wrap tefillin on fingers that are spastic. But I said, I'll do this. And it was remarkable. Literally seconds after I said that, I felt a smack on my head. And I looked up, what was that? And there was a dove that was flying away. And I don't know if you can say this on radio. You can there say was whatever you like. <laughs> bird shit that was oozing down my cheek. And I was furious, this gray shit. And I said, you know, how this is I was furious. And I I remember I walked away very quickly and in defiance of the place and of God, I turned my back. You're not supposed to turn your back to the hotel. I did. And I walked away. I was very angry. But I was very thankful as time went by to that bird because it helped clarify something for me. You don't practice so that you will be better. You don't – it can't be conditional belief and practice. And for me, I eventually got to a place that is where I was meant to be. It's very comfortable for me, which is I happen not to believe. I am not a believer in God. I would say I'm agnostic as opposed to atheist, but I do not believe in God. But I happen to love Judaism. I love it. And I love the traditions. I love Shabbat. Um, I love the learning. And so I am a person who is a very traditional Jew in terms of practice, but not belief. And I feel thankful to be part of a religion where there, it seems to me anyways, a lot of room for such a person. It would strike me as a practice-centric religion, whereas other religions, maybe belief is a little more central. And that's where I landed, and I'm very comfortable there. In fact, just this um, year, I started again to put on my tefillin all of these years later. Um, I do it because it's a connection for me, um, not only with Judaism, but my grandfather. He has a, he's 94 years old. He has a beautiful pair of tefillin that he got from his great-grandfather that um, I hope to one day put on myself. Let's turn a little bit to your work more generally. 
you have reported on a variety of topics and on people, elusive people, people who are hard to track down, people maybe who aren't so hard to track down but have had life-changing incidents. Uh, we're talking about people like Norma McCorvey, who many listeners will know as Jane Roe. She was the woman who was pregnant in the seminal Supreme Court case of Roe v. Wade. Uh, people like Albert Clark, who seemed to squander his potential. He had this wonderful uh, luck in that he was the heir to uh, all the royalties of Goodnight Moon. What is it about these personalities that attracts you? It's interesting. The two people you just cited, Albert Clark, who, yes, he was the heir to the royalties of the books written by Margaret Wise Brown, who wrote Goodnight Moon and Runaway Bunny, and many others, and Norma McCorvey, who, as you said, was the plaintiff of Roe v. Wade. These were people whose lives were defined by um, a circumstance, and that was not of their doing. Um, Norma did not go out and seek to be the plaintiff in this case. She was plucked almost at random by a lawyer named Linda Coffey, who had gone to law school with another lawyer named Henry McCluskey, who had met Norma. Norma really had no sense of what was at stake. She simply wanted to have an abortion. Um, and her whole life, all of the years since then, the 40 years since that case was handed down, her life has been determined by this one fact. She is Jane Roe, and that has determined the course of her life. Same with Albert Clark. And it was, as I said earlier, very difficult thought for me, the thought of being defined by something that was not of my doing. And I hadn't even put it to myself as clearly as I am saying it to you right now. These two were defined by it, and I did not want to be. And I have been wrestling with that question for a long, long time. The other thing that writing these stories has helped me to see is that I keep writing about people who have lived with secrets. And it's interesting, if you and I go out on a date I can't decide on my third date, on our third date, to tell you, oh, by the way, I have a disability. I walk with a limp. Unless I do not move and my cane remains beneath the table, you will see, oh, this guy has a limp. Of course, it's then my decision to tell you what it is, but it would be strange not to. So I live openly. I'm forced to live openly, and that openness has worked for me. I am not forced to deal, to grapple with unburdening myself of something. And so many people, whether it's they struggle with anxiety or depression or, or so many things, um, they can choose not to reveal that. And that is a difficult circumstance, believe it or not. So I am drawn to stories also where people have had a large secret in their lives and they unburden themselves of it. Often to me, Albert Clark told me for the first time in his life, he told his story about about being this beneficiary of this enormous amount of money, or for example, Jahangir Razmi, who was the only ever anonymous recipient of a Pulitzer Prize, a, a photographer I found in Tehran, and what it was like for them to decide to no longer live in secrecy, um, I've found fascinating. Well, why do you think they uh, see you as such a sympathetic confidant? You know, it's interesting. I think the longer you live, the more you endure and experience, and when you've experienced another thing, if suddenly you're disabled or you're divorced or you're a Cubs fan or whatever <laughs> difficult circumstance you have, you can then relate to a whole new swath of people. And I think people look at me and they say, hey, that's a guy who might be able to understand. 
he seems to have a vulnerability about him, perhaps. That is something that has been told to me more than once. And, you know, I actually think it's true. I am empathetic. Um, I do feel for the people I write about. And it becomes very hard to judge a person if you understand them. And, you know, there's a beautiful quote I, I use, I refer a lot in my book to Moby Dick. And there's a beautiful quote in that book. It's, he says, yet see how elastic our stiff prejudices grow when love once comes to bend them. And boy, is that true. It is very difficult to be prejudiced against a group, whether they are Jewish or disabled or black or gay or any other group, when you know someone from that group, when, when you love someone from that group. And so I feel, boy, over and again, I have the chance to be the disabled person that they know, the Jewish person that they know. And, and that is often who I am. Um, I've traveled a lot and I'm often the only traditional Jew that a, that a person knows. And I, I take that responsibility seriously and I think I'm repaid for it, my, my empathy in the sense that people confide in me. And I think it's a great gift to hear a person's story. I'll add parenthetically that I always was a person people felt comfortable talking to. And so that fact is also kind of comforting to me in the sense that it isn't simply a result of the crash. I'll tell you a story. One day I was walking down the street and a woman came over to me. We started talking. And soon thereafter, she started to cry. And I said, why are you crying? Because I'd had this experience before. Why are you crying? This is ridiculous. Having a nice conversation. And she thought about it and she later wrote me. More than a year later, she wrote me and she said, I think I was crying because you, you seem like a happy person, which I really am, and a strong person, which I'd like to think I am. She said, but you're also vulnerable. And what I realized is, you know, I'm still me, but I'm now me despite a limp. And that is what now makes me me. So all of us are who we are, and then we are who we are. In addition, we are who we are in terms of how we react to our circumstances. And I suppose there is something about a person overcoming difficulty and overcoming hardship that is very moving to people. But I guess you could also say we are who we are based on how others perceive us. That is such an important point. It's, it's a point at the heart of my book People look at people who have physical disabilities and they marvel at them wow, if, they're, if they're happy. And they say, wow, look at that person. He's smiling even though he's sort of limping along. What they don't realize is that they have lived through more difficult things. It is more difficult, much more difficult to deal with an emotional hardship or an intellectual hardship, a mental one, than a physical one. Mine is much more conspicuous, but I can tell you – I've had three hardships in my life, let's say. One of them is dealing with this physical disability. One of them is having been married briefly and that that um, relationship fell apart. And the other one was growing up the with a, with a mother who was very sick. Now, two of those experiences are shared by tens of millions of people. Many people have a relationship fall apart, particularly one is it was only two years from beginning to end. Many people have a loved one who is sick and they sort of – but very few people have a spinal cord injury that leaves them permanently disabled. Well, I can tell you that that is by far – it was the least difficult of the three experiences. And so people have a tendency to not understand that, that 
they could also deal well with this. We have an inability to forecast how we will react to a situation until we're in that situation. And we perceive the struggle of a person who has a great physical disability as more difficult than it actually is. Now, of course, I'm no longer a quadriplegic and what I, what I endure is quaint compared to that. But I was not unhappy even when I was much more severely disabled. Josh Prager, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Josh Prager has written for Vanity Fair, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and other publications. He's the author of two books. His most recent is Half-Life, Reflections from Jerusalem on a Broken Neck. It's a byliner original, and you can find out more about his work on his website, joshuaprager.com. As ever, we want to know what you thought about our podcast today, so please do post a comment on our website, get a conversation going. You can also email us at podcast at tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to come back next week. We've got a tale of golems and summer camp that will keep you on the edge of your seat.